people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. This is Rudy Ray Moore, better known as Dolomite. I've got an all-girl army that knows what to do. They'll boxes hell and practice kung fu. From the first to the last, I give them the blast so fast that their life is passed before they have even hit the grass. Dolomite. Uptown, downtown, crowned and renowned. I put my finger in the ground and turn the whole world around. Dolomite. Rated R, under 17, not permitted, without a parent or permission from your ward. Watch out, mister. Here comes the twister. This is Rudy Ray Moore. Yes, I'm the human tornado. I chain down thunder and handcuff lightning. I'm so damn strong, it's sometimes frightening. I grabbed a star traveling a million miles a minute and slowed it down to the state speed limit. Yes, I'm the human tornado. Spinning, grinning, and sinning. I used an earthquake to mix my milkshake. I eat an avalanche when I want ice cream. I punched a hurricane and made it a breeze. I swallowed an iceberg and didn't freeze. The human tornado. Flinging cash and talking trash. Dreamy, delayed, relayed, mislaid, and parlayed. Jumped, thumped, bumped, and mugwumped. The human Petey Wheatstraw. Petey Wheatstraw. Petey Wheatstraw. <laughs> that Dolomite man, Rudy Ray Moore, is back funnier than ever in the new movie, Petey Wheatstraw. If you want to laugh your off, see Petey Wheatstraw. Rudy Ray Moore is Petey Wheatstraw. Starring Leroy and Skillet, Jimmy Funky Tramp Lynch, and Wild Man Steve. If you don't want to laugh, leave your at home. Petey Wheatstraw. Rated R. All right, my friends, it is time for another special episode. I'm your host, Mike White, and I am talking with Mark Jason Murray, the author of Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself, the authorized biography of Rudy Ray Moore. You are in for a treat hearing some good behind-the-scenes stories of the putting together of possibly one of the best biographies I've ever read. And you will hear my passion as we go through this interview. Trust me, I don't usually make my questions into long, rambling statements, but I sure did this time because I am so impressed with this book. It is available right now. You can go to www.rudyraymore.com. You can also go over to grindhousereleasing.com, pick up the book at either place. It's the same book, just depends on where you want to buy it from. It's fantastic. It will not do you wrong. I'm not going to do you wrong. Let's go ahead and play this interview, and I hope you put your weight on it. Can you tell me a little bit more about you and kind of how you really got into movies and and movie making? I just seem to recall always having an interest in films. I remember when there were those pre-cable kind of satellite networks like on TV and select TV that you could just kind of go buy a, a dish and put it on your TV antenna and you sort of magically had movies. 
I remember watching things on that when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine years old and mom and pop video stores. I think when I was in the fifth grade, I saw Lucio Fulci's house by the cemetery on one of those little satellite networks. That one was really, you know, instrumental to me of just like, wow, this is crazy. Especially that opening scene where the, you know, the girl kind of gets the knife through the back of the head that comes out of her mouth. And then I ended up finding that at a mom and pop video store. And those things kind of just clicked, you know, you would see zombie and it was like, you know, and I, at a young age, I just kind of realized, well, this is the same director. This is the guy that also did, did this movie. I didn't have any real point of reference or anything. I'm an only child. So I didn't have like an older brother or somebody who was, you know, Hey kid, you know, watch this. And I just, I just kind of took to that. I always been interested in music and heavy music and, and always just, just kind of when I find something that I'm interested in, I just feel like I have to absorb it completely. You know, even with the videos, I used to go around town as a kid and I would write down the videos that every video store in the area had, whether I knew what they were or not. And then if I discovered something, you know, oh, Blood Feast. Oh, I okay. They have that movie down at 49er Video. Like, mom, you got to take me to the video store on Saturday. So just always really inquisitive. And I've never really been someone who's, I guess you could say, a spectator. I have to be a participator. So I've never made films, but I've been in a couple little movies and you know, I worked, you know, I was the consultant for Dolomite is my name and, and all the things that I've done over the years from putting out bobbleheads and magazines and releasing comedy CDs and death metal and whatever it is. What was your first exposure to Rudy Ray Moore? That was in 1991. I was 17 years old. I was already pretty well versed in cult movies. You know, by that time, I had already seen things like Cannibal Holocaust and Necromantic and Salo. And of course, these are the days prior to any of this stuff being you know, commercially released. So I was tape trading videotapes with people in the mail. There was a place called Video Vault. I think it was in Michigan. They used to have rental by mail. And I used to rent from there. And that's where I got a lot of their stuff was, was bootleg. But that's where I got Cannibal Holocaust and things of that nature. But I had never actually really gotten into, not for any particular reason, like the black exploitation movies. And I had a friend who called me and said, you have to see this movie I just rented. So I, I, just, I just remember it like it was yesterday. I drove over to his house. He passed the video out his bedroom window. I never even turned the car off. I just pulled over, grabbed the video as he reached out the window took it home and it was dolomite and it was just kind of like a bomb exploded in in my brain in some ways it's hard to explain but there was something about it where and it's a shabby movie it's poorly made but it's entertaining i mean i was already a fan of things like plan nine from outer space and and kind of wasn't very happy that that some movies were called you know the worst movie ever made i found that to be immensely entertaining so how could it be the worst movie ever made and Dolomite was kind of along those lines of a movie that was just poorly made. The plot has major holes in it. Some things don't make sense. But Rudy was just this force, force of nature on the screen. And it was there was something about it that kind of felt like the movie just willed itself into existence. Like it just it just like it it had to happen. Somehow it just it became. And there was no information about Rudy back then. I knew nothing. I knew nothing. This was completely foreign to me. And just after seeing it, obviously it set something in motion that here I am, you know, 30 plus years later, still you know, researching and talking about Rudy. But I 
I didn't have any idea that he was really a comedian, that he had been a singer, that he had released comedy albums, that there were other movies. But I figured it out quickly. You know, I did realize he he had been had recordings, but there was still no information on him. So I just had to continuously stumble across things. So I may have found a, a catalog that listed all of his movies, you know, Human Tornado and Disco Godfather, P.D. Weedstraw. Once I realized he had some comedy albums out, I was constantly at all the used record stores in town. I just kind of stumble across one thing here and there and just continued. It was like a constant quest. Um, there was there were always certain bands or artists that even as even when I was younger, every week when I go to the record store, I would check, you know, the Devo section and the cramp section and 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 whatever, just to see if there was anything new that was in there because there just wasn't readily available information. So I just started getting his material. And then one day I had a friend who called me and I believe he found an address in Film Threat magazine. And he said, I, I don't know if this is right, but I think this might be Rudy Ray Moore's address or someone connected to Rudy Ray Moore. And so I wrote him, this would be about 94. So about three years into my quest of relating to Rudy. And it turned out it was him. And I was doing a fanzine called Shocking Images back then. It was primarily you know, horror and Italian horror and, and things of that nature. But I wanted some information on Rudy. Turned out it was him. And I had asked him if he wanted to do an interview. And he wrote back and sent me a couple little photocopied pieces of paper with weird shit on it and you know, pictures of him, you know, giving the finger or whatever it was. And it just said, yes, I'm interested. And so I, I remember I, I called him, set up an interview and, and did that interview. I think this was 1994 when that interview was actually completed. And it was just about the most basic interview you, you could imagine. Here's myself who have really no idea what this guy's done or the scope of his life and career, you know, asking just the most basic questions. He didn't seem annoyed by it, but I think in retrospective, you know, when I go back and I listen to that and I think, man, just how green behind the ears was I when I called him, you know, I probably would have been annoyed by myself with that kind of ill-informed interviewer, you know, but he was, he was gracious. He appreciated that. I remember when the magazine came out, I had sent him a copy and he, he sent me a clock. He would make these dollar store clocks where he would take it and he glued dominoes around it for the numbers and would cut a piece of paper with a picture of him on it and glue it on there and say like the Dolomite time. And these were things that he would sell at his concerts. And so he made one of those and signed it for me. And, and to me, that was like the most amazing thing. You know, I'm just, I'm still just this kid essentially who um, feel like I just, you know, spoke with my idol. I remember the day after or the day of that interview that I did, I went to work later that day and was telling everybody, oh, I spoke with Rudy Ray Moore. And people were like, who the hell is that? You know, to me, I was like, I just spoke to God, you know, like this is like the defining moment of my life. And, and I guess it kind of was in a way because it set that course in motion. And we, we just remained in contact with each other all the time. And I tried to have some kind of information on him in every issue of shocking images that I was putting out. You know, this is just a still a little, little small press thing, thousand copies a piece. And, and, Part of it, too, was just being so frustrated that there wasn't any information out there. And then when I would find information, even with my limited knowledge, I would realize that it was incorrect. And so it just kind of snowballed from there where I, I kept wondering what he was up to. And he's still performing and he still was releasing his you know, vocal cassettes and, and things. He was still active and doing things, but there was no real 
area or, or place for solid information on him. So I had asked him if he if he minded if I started a website. So I started RudyRayMore.com back around like 96 or 97. I don't remember specifically the, the year. And he agreed. He would call me and let me know what some of his dates were and things that he had going on. And, and so I would post it on the website. And, you know, it was funny. I, I'll never forget. He came over to my apartment and I was trying to show him the website. He just had no comprehension of, you know, a computer, the internet. I don't believe he ever even owned a computer, to be honest with you. Most of the times when I communicated with him outside of the phone, I would have to fax things to him. But it was, I'm just sitting there, you know, here I am sitting with Dolomite in my apartment. I'm still kind of, you know, still kind of a young kid trying to show him his website. I think I ultimately explained it to him like, okay, just think about this page as like an electronic book. If we click on this, this is like chapter one. You know, he, he kind of figured it out. You know, it just it just continued on from there. So I just it just sort of in one way or another, just I guess we could say became my life's mission to ultimately write his story. Would you say that you guys became friends over the years or was it more of a professional relationship? It was both. Rudy had a way of of letting people in sometimes. You know, he was guarded. His career was was him. His whole life was his his career. So primarily when we would talk, it would be in relation to what he had going on or me asking questions about his past. But there were times when we would have those those little moments where we would talk about something. You know, I remember once we had a discussion about Bella Lugosi because he was, said he was a fan of Bella Lugosi, which which I am, too. There were some other times when we even had, you know, discussions about like race relations because I was a skinny, bald headed white kid who was a fan of Rudy Ray Moore. And, and he had even asked me one time if, if I would get hassled because of the way that I looked. And, you know, it, it's kind of funny. There was one time when he, he appeared in Sacramento, which is where I live. We went to the performance and I had some, some other friends with me and, and my girlfriend at the time. And I remember we stood out like a sore thumb. It was all, you know, it was like, it was, it was really, it was like all a bunch of brothers. And then there was these, like, uh, there was myself, you know, I'm covered in tattoos. I'm there with another guy who's got dreadlocks and he's covered in tattoos. And there was a you know Mexican guy, a friend of ours with us. He's covered in tattoos. So we just kind of like were off in one corner and just completely didn't fit in. And the night was kind of funny because Rudy goes around and he does his thing and he, he, he would always perform on the floor. He was never really like a stage performer. He liked to get down on the floor and he would mess with people. He'd get up in their face and ask them, you know, put the microphone and put them on the spot, you know, insult them or whatever. And I became the butt of one of his jokes where he makes a comment that, you know, white guys have small dicks and all they can really do is just nut a girl to death. So, you know, and so he's pointing at me. OK, cool, Rudy. And in some weird way, that's like an honor. You know, like Rudy came and insulted me like, hell, yeah. And he kind of turned around after he did it and pointed me out to the crowd. And said, Does everybody here know Mark? And everybody's looking at me like, who the hell is this dumb little white guy? And he's like, you know, Mark's my good friend. He does my website and blah, blah, blah. And after the the performance, he's at his table signing his his stuff. It was almost like I was a celebrity now because everybody was coming up to me like, oh, man, you know, Dolomite and blah, blah, blah. And it was just kind of this this interesting moment where. I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to explain, but I think you see what I'm getting getting at. It was like all of a sudden he it was like he vouched for me that night and everybody was like, oh, cool, man. You know, your friends with, with Dolomite and he was a cool guy. We probably spoke, I think, on average about once a week, you know, for for that entire time until about a year before he passed away. 
he's a character. There's so many stories that I could tell. And if you don't mind, I'll ramble off one here that just, it just, it just cracks me up. He, one of the things that he did was he always had nicknames for people. So, and it was always in relation to something that usually what you were introduced to him by. So because it was my fanzine shocking images, every time I would call, he'd pick up the phone and say, Mark, from the images that are shocking. And then he'd want to spell my name, M-A-R-C. He'd say that all the time. I know, Rudy, it's M-A-R-K. It's not M-A-R-C. Like, like questioning if I know how to spell my own name. No, Rudy, it's M-A-R-K. And he had that rapport with, with a lot of people. And he would do, he, he always had weird hours. I remember one time he called me about 2.30 in the morning and he was trying to sound like a, like a Chinese, hello, is Mr. Murray there? You know, like, you know, talking in a really poor wannabe Chinese accent. And I just remember waking him and go, Rudy, what the fuck are you doing? And he, and he was like, how'd you know it was me? Like he, like he was upset that, that he didn't pull it over on me. You know, he would just, he would just do things like that. And probably the, he had that voice, that, that deep baritone voice and that kind of slow cadence that he talked in. And anyone that knew him, anytime they tell a story, they have their own little impersonation of how he spoke. It just, it's funny. You know, because I was in contact with him so much, I think that was part of, of course, what helped in the project. It was, it was actually 2001 when I decided, like myself officially, like, hey, Rudy, I want to write a book about you. And I remember he said, well, there's already a book about me. And it was just this really thin, it was almost like a pamphlet. It was basically an interview that was transcribed and had some of his material transcribed as well. It was really no solid information. It was, it was better than the original interview that I had done, but it wasn't anything of, of you know, significant substance. And he was kind of reluctant. And you know, as I learned more about him and his story, I understood why he was reluctant. He cooperated and it was, it was a struggle. You know, I had no other uh, contacts for anything. I just had Rudy. Rudy was my only contact, but I didn't want it to just be me talking to Rudy. Remember, he wanted it to be basically just a big fluff piece. You know, Rudy Raymore is the greatest of all time and he's the greatest singer and the greatest comedian and the greatest actor and just nothing but platitudes of, of, of how great he was. I, of course, wanted to be more. I wanted more of a story there than just kissing his ass the whole time. I think the, the first thing I got was he gave me Cliff Rockmore's phone number. Cliff was the, the director of The Human Tornado and the writer and director of P.D. Wheatstraw. Uh, the two of them were, as a team, I think that's the prime period in Rudy Raymore's career. What they achieved together in their world was spectacular. I was very lucky because Cliff, when I, when I got in touch with him, was, was like I said, it was 2001 when I started this officially. It was, I think, August of 2001 that I finally reached out to Cliff, thanks to Rudy providing me his phone number. And I was able to speak with Cliff probably, I think, eight to 10 hours over the course of a couple months. And then in early 2002, I think it was like February 2nd or February 5th, Cliff had passed away. Um, he had throat cancer. And I was just so fortunate to include him and in, you know, have him in, you know, in my archives that I was working on. His his commentary about everything that he did was a significant part of of the portion of my book where I'm talking about Rudy's films. Um, Cliff was very supportive of what I was doing. Um, there were a couple opportunities where he was trying to meet up with me. Unfortunately, we never were able to meet face to face, but he was still doing his thing. He was still directing plays and writing. That guy just he just continued to do his thing the entire time. 
he uh, hooked me up with Ernie Hudson. He and Ernie Hudson had gone to college together in Detroit and had remained lifelong friends. And of course, Ernie, I don't think it's his first role. Rudy likes to believe that he gave Ernie Hudson his big Hollywood break. But I think Ernie had already been in Lead Belly and was you know, was working on some other plays. And so his career was was going to do what it was going to do. But, you know, Rudy was able to hire him because kind of like on Cliff's insistence, you know, like, let's bring let's bring my friend Ernie in. So I was able to, to you know, speak with Ernie and, and do interviews with him. And I again, I'm, I'm rambling on here, but Ernie was an was is an amazing guy. Even up to, to this day, I've, I've been continued to be in touch with him. Anytime that there's been something related to Rudy that I've worked on, like the Vinegar Syndrome, the Blu-ray re-releases that came out in 2016, I've always just been able to call him and say, hey, do you want to, you know, are you willing to do an interview with this? The book came out. I sent him a text. Hey, Ernie, my book's ready. You know, here's, send it along. And he was really excited to see it. And Ernie's just a great guy. Always has given Rudy credit for what Rudy did. And I think basically Ernie's comment is always like, this guy gave me a job when I was trying to do what I wanted to do with my life. You know, he was, he was out there giving black actors and actresses work. So he's always had that respect. It just kind of went from there. And I just would track people down. Of course, again, it was a lot harder to find people. You have used to have to call, like you'd call the screen actors guild and, and they would let you ask for the contact information of three people. You could only do three people and then you'd hang up and you'd call them right back and you'd ask for three more people. It just kind of went from there. I would try to find anybody that I could. I remember I, I spoke with Mary Love, who is in Dolomite. She sings a song and has probably like the worst lip sync performance in, in, a, in a movie of all time. And I felt it was relevant to, to speak with her. Even if someone provided me one valid comment, it was worth pursuing in, in my mind. And I remember she had said that she wasn't very fond in retrospect of being in Ruby's movies because she had become very religious. Her husband was a pastor and they had founded a church and, and things of that nature. But she was willing to talk to me about it a little bit. And I remember she said, oh, well, you know, if, if uh, you talk to Rudy again, uh, let, let him know, uh, give me a call. And so, of course, I talked to Rudy in a couple of days and I remember telling him, hey, Rudy, and I talked to Mary Love the other day and he just he lit me up. Why in the hell are you talking to her? She's got nothing to do with my career. See, now I'm doing Rudy's. Now I'm impersonating Rudy's voice. You know, you have to do it when you're relating a, a story. And he just lit me up of like, she has no, she's not of any importance. And I realized right then that he wanted, you know, he's like, you can talk to James Ingram. You know, I gave James Ingram his break and James Ingram won a bunch of Grammys and is a big star. And so then I realized right there that he just wanted people who were as famous or more famous than him to be the ones to talk to. Plus, he also said that he thinks that she was trying to get money from him, which kind of became an issue with for Rudy, not with him, but for him for years, because there were a lot of people that in her example, I think it was, there was a uh, old dirty bastard had a video for baby, I got your money. And they used clips from Dolomite in that music video and superimposed ODB's head over the top of, of Rudy for that video. And there's clips of Mary Love in there. So I think she thought she was due some money. Rudy always, it was work for hire for Rudy. He paid everybody flat out and that was it. You know, you're not, you're not do anything. 
And even that scenario came up when Netflix was doing the Dolomite is my name film. You get children of people who were involved in, in Dolomite thinking that they have some kind of rights to something or they're due some kind of residuals. And I remember at that time, there was a, a reporter who was writing a story about Jerry Jones' daughter um, with that. And, and Jerry Jones and I were very close as well. I even spoke at his funeral. Um, and I told the reporter, and she didn't like my answer, and it never appeared in her, her article. But I said, you know, if, if I'm a construction worker and I poured the concrete there on a house, I'm paid for that job. I don't get royalties every time that house is sold. That's work for hire. Of course, she didn't like that. She didn't use that in, in her article because that didn't promote her, her idea that, that someone else was due something. You know? and, and, it, and it is unfortunate that there are people that might be in financial situations where they feel that they're due something. But I mean, that's just the nature of, you know, I was paid for being the consultant on Dolomite is my name, but I don't get anything else if it gets sold to another company or or makes more money or, you know, that's just what it is. You start this project in 2001. The book comes out, was it 2021 or 2022? I had it in hand at the beginning of January of this year of 2022. Obviously, you're making money hand over fist running RudyRayMoore.com. You're probably sitting on a golden throne right now. So yeah, no, you're working a day job, working this as well, trying to do all this research. This has got to be really intensive to track down all these people and just to be putting this together for all of these years. I do say that I spent 30 years on it because I, of course, when I first saw the movie in 1991, that's when it all started. That's when I started the journey of trying to find out everything I could. I've been collecting Rudy's stuff that entire time. When I think about it, Rudy was very guarded about certain things, and I don't want to be the, you know, read it in the book type of an interview, but there are things that pick up the book. To me, and this is, I don't mean this to be a platitude, you know, you know, I'm not patting myself on the back or anything, but it was very, very important for me and also very scary for me to make sure that this was as accurate as it possibly could be. Now, part of it was that that I had in one way or another, you know, not directly, but indirectly made a promise to Rudy that I wanted to, I believed he deserved a legacy and he didn't really have one back then. So not, not that everything that, that has come since then is all because of me, but I, I will take credit that, that I've been a part of all of that. And I've been running Rudy's internet presence still do um, to this day and probably will for the rest of my life. I just had to make sure that it was correct. And one thing that, and of course, it took me forever. And there were people that were like, oh, you know, you're saying you're Rudy Moore's biographer, but don't you actually have to put a book out to be considered a biographer? And there were times that I wanted to give up and just thought, you know, this is never going to be done. And I kind of came up with a catchphrase when people would question that. And I would always say, I would rather have it right than rushed. You know, things that also changed too. There were big gaps in Rudy's story that I did not have after he passed. And he passed in, in, in 2008. So I was, you know, seven years technically in, involved in my deep research of that. And there was still so much that I did not have. And I wanted to make sure that I turned over every stone three times. You know, I may have turned over a stone in 2001 that didn't mean anything to me. But 10 years later, when I had more information, now all of a sudden that bit of information was valid and, and fit somewhere into the puzzle. You know, there was even times when, when I was talking with Cliff, just coincidentally, he had told me that one of his partners that he had 
was living in Sacramento. And he just, he remembered the street name that this person lived on, but he did not have the, the house number. And he wasn't even entirely certain that they lived there anymore. I went and knocked on the door of every house on that street and asked, you know, is there, you know, is your mother here? It was, it was a, it was a woman that was, that was his partner. And I, I don't even remember if I had the name. He just had said that and just out of the blue, I just was like, screw it. I'm just going to go over there and knock on some doors. And, you know, does Cliff Rockmore, is that name familiar to you? And then I got a lot of no's and people that weren't there. I just posted a note on the door. Never heard anything, which was a bummer because this person supposedly had a lot of Cliff's materials. And I think those are are, are now lost. There was a time when, uh, and I've met Cliff's, Cliff's sons too. And I was told that there was a time when Cliff was leaving one of his offices and he was like, oh, you know, we can come back for that later. Like a file cabinet with his paperwork or something in there. And for some reason, something happened and they never were able to retrieve that. But he had told me that he kept all of his paperwork. He had, you know, his budgets and and scripts and and all of that stuff has been nearly impossible to uh, to find. Never found a script for Dolomite. Even Jerry Jones didn't have one. Uh, I did find a script for Human Tornado which in itself is an interesting story. Randomly, I found that it had been posted on eBay and someone had purchased it for like $200. And I I just obsessively searched for Rudy stuff on eBay, like practically on a daily basis. And my first thought was, how in the hell did I never see this? It just amazed me that I never saw it. I contacted the person that had sold it and said, hey, you know, here's who I am. I'm trying to see if there's any way that I can get even just a photocopy of this. Do you know who purchased it? Which not expecting them to just, you know what, screw you, man. You know, we're not telling you who who bought this off of us. And it turned out it was a, a company that dealt in rare scripts and rare books and things of that nature. So they, with a significant markup, uh, sold it to me. But what was interesting, it, it was a it was an original script with all the handwritten notes from while they were you know shooting. Had extra stuff that was written in. It was done, you know, kind of on set. And and Jerry Jones didn't have that script either. There's never found anything for Petey Wheatstraw. There's a script that's been floating around for Disco Godfather. Somebody's been selling one on eBay for probably decades. But just finding paperwork was nearly impossible. Because I had the website, this was probably maybe around, I don't know, say 2012 or something like that. There was a guy who emailed me and said that he had found papers in a storage unit in Los Angeles that had Rudy's name on it and some other people. And he was trying to figure out what they were. And it turned out it was Jeannie Marie, who uh, most people don't really recognize that name when I say it, but they will recognize that there's a part in Dolomite is my name when Rudy is introducing Lady Reed to the to the group. And they sing that uh, if I was an itty bitty girl and had a whole lot of money, that that part, you know, we would suck and I would suck and we would suck together. That song was actually a song that Rudy and Jeannie Marie had sang on Rudy's Eat Out More Often album. They were they were very close friends. Uh, So she had some of his paperwork in there. And this guy shared a little bit of that with me. At that time, I didn't have a whole lot of cash. So, of course, those kind of guys that get those storage units, they're looking to flip that stuff for the maximum amount of money. I couldn't get it from him, but he did share a few things with me. So just over the years, just random, random things would, would fall into my lap. Luckily there were still people that were alive. 
you know, I was able, like I said, Jerry Jones, talked to him all the time, tried to help him get some other things rolling. And, and I think part of the, the beauty of this project, and it's changed my life. This is not just like a, you know, I didn't just write a book, so to speak. I became friends, very close friends with so many of these people. And, you know, I might even get emotional here talking about this, you know, like, uh, you know, Jerry was, Jerry was a good friend. He was, he was a no bullshit, tell it like it is kind of guy. Talked with him frequently. I was trying to help him get things going. He had a, a musical that he was doing called Chicago Club Rum Boogie, which he had he actually had some performances of it and it was pretty good. And I was kind of like part of the team involved in that. And they were trying to get it picked up for, you know, some kind of a wider release. And, and he had scripts that he was trying to get made. And I was you know, kind of, in in sort of loose ways, just kind of like trying to be an agent in a way to or a contact or a middleman for for these guys. You know, Ben Taylor, who sang the Dolomite theme and, and worked on all those movies, he's he's a super close friend. Whenever I go to Los Angeles, I usually stay at Ben's house. We're so close to him, he calls and talks to my wife all the time. So it's like they're they're family. You know, we lost Jimmy Lynch last year. And you know, Jimmy doesn't he has a micro cameo in Dolomite. But he's, of course, in Human Tornado and P.D. Weedstraw and, and, and Disco Godfather. And, and Jimmy was a huge part of Rudy's story and a friend of his for, for decades. And, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy used to say I was his only white son. And, you know, he would call my wife and sing her songs on her birthday. And, you know, so it, like it's it's incredible, like what's come out of all of this for me personally. You don't think about all that other stuff. You know, and so and because I became so close with all these people, it was incredibly important that it was correct. You know, I wanted it to be respectful, even if there were warts in the story, it still needed to be respectful. What was the most surprising thing that you found in all this research? Probably Rudy's his birth, his origins. Those were things that he wasn't very willing to discuss. That's a lot of the part where he was very guarded, was very painful, his childhood. That was one of the big gaps as well that that I didn't have the full story. You know, I could have written a paragraph and moved on to him becoming a singer, and it just to me that wasn't wasn't proper. You know, I had to know what it was. But part of the difference was that after Rudy passed, the dialogue that I would have with people was 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 different. You know, now that he's not here, people were are a little bit more willing to divulge things that that they would not have when Rudy was here. Rudy was always kind of hustling to make that next project. And I think that, that you know, that, that kind of group of, of core core group that he had in the 70s always kind of wanted to, and then I don't want to say this as a negative, but, you know, there was always, I think, just kind of a hope that maybe Rudy had one more movie in him and they would be brought along, you know, that they're still part of that, that gang. Rudy could get angry <laughs> and he could hold grudges. And there were times when when he would just get pissed off at me about something I was asking him that he didn't want to answer. It took me a long time to really understand. And again, I was I was young. You know, I didn't have a lot of experience in in retrospect. I was in way over my head. He would get angry with me and just kind of go off. It seemed like it listened to him complain for 20 minutes. But kind of the beauty of that was that after he would run out of steam, he would tell me what I originally had asked. It just like, he just don't know what it was. Like he, it was, he was trying to fight telling it, I guess, but maybe I wore him down enough to where he just would finally, you know, give up the ghost. And, and I learned over time, 
better ways to deal with them because I would kind of approach them like, you know, Hey Rudy, you know, I'll call you on Tuesday and we'll do another interview. It, like just because I said the word interview, it became tiring to him. Like he just already was like, Oh my God, like, you know, he's going to ask me a bunch of shit. I don't want to go over again. So I would just kind of call him and maybe just do like 10 minutes of just like, Hey Rudy, remember when you recorded the song? Like where, where were you? And, and jot down notes and maybe record them. And, and so I just kind of like would get little, little bits and pieces from him here and there as, as those things came up, he had a great memory, but there were times when, when you kind of had to really determine if this was just Rudy's basic story, you know, he would give those lines, you know, I'm the greatest of all time. And he had that basic information that he was going to give down. Like he was just reciting it no different than if he was reciting a routine because nobody was asking him anything different. He was answering the same questions that I had asked him back in, you know, 1994 or whatever it was. And I remember seeing stuff and it still happens today. I remember it was one of those uh, McFarland, McFarland books where they would put out those kind of like encyclopedias of Westerns and encyclopedias of films. And I remember in one of those books, there was a review of maybe Human Tornado or something. And it said, Rudy was an ex-boxer. Like, no, Rudy was not an ex-boxer. Um, you know, I think the the main one that still this still continues. And I got this even after Dolomite as my name came out where people were like, well, Rudy was a preacher. Why didn't you include that in the movie? Okay. Well, Rudy was not a preacher. So that's why it's not in the movie. You know, when he was a kid, yeah, he would recite poetry and sing in church and he went to church, but he was not a preacher. He's got the perfect voice and the perfect posture and, and demeanor and everything to, to be a, you know, a hell of a fire and brimstone, you know, type of a preacher, but he wasn't. When Scott and Larry, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski first wrote that script. My wife and I went down to their office and, and we read the script. You know, of course, they couldn't give me a copy of it, but you know, here, you, know, you can go in the room and read it and you know, we'll leave you alone and then we'll talk about it. And I just remember you know, my first, the first reading of it, I didn't really get the full scope of what the movie was, was going to be because I was just, because I'd spent so many, so many years on the details like just the details, like so many details. And so I couldn't escape the the chronology of those details and everything when I was reading their script. You know, I remember saying to them, like, you know, you got this part here where you're talking about, you know, Deep Throat, but this is 1970 and Deep Throat didn't come out till 72. You know, and they're just like, okay, Mark, you need to settle down. Right. You know, like, <laughs> like, this is, we, we only have a short amount of time to put a whole lot of stuff into a film. You're mixing up human tornado and dolomite. What are you doing? <laughs> right. And and that still gets some criticism. I remember that someone had bought a copy of dolomite on Amazon after dolomite is my name came out. And their comment was this movie's edited. I, and they sent it back because it didn't have the bed, the, you know, the shaking bedroom scene that's in human tornado. Um, you know, we we can circle back to dolomite is my name if you want, but that was, you know, to Scott and Larry's credit, they were like, you know, we have one chance to do this. How can we not include that scene? That's probably the most notorious scene out of any one of Rudy's movies, you know, but it's just it's, after the movie came out, I, I call them instant experts. You know, everybody just all of a sudden knew, seemed like they knew everything about Rudy. There, of course, is, is a lot of stuff that's, you know, I'll say modified. I don't want to say inaccurate or anything because it, it isn't. You know, it's not a documentary. It's 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 a film based on these items. You're taking a man's life and condensing it to 90 some minutes. You know, we're not going to spend 20 minutes introducing Derville Martin. So if I backtrack a little bit, I had already interviewed Larry 
knowing he was a fan of, of Rudy Ray Moore years prior. And we just kind of kept in touch. And, and, and I already knew that they had tried to do a movie in the early 2000s with Eddie Murphy while Rudy was still alive. So none of that stuff was, was you know, new knowledge to me. And then when this came up to do Dolomite is my name, to their credit, and Scott and Larry are great guys. I love them to death. When it came up, they basically said, well, if we're going to do this, we need, we need Mark involved because this is the guy with all the information. When I had, when I saw Ed Wood, what, what year was Ed Wood? Gosh, I had to have been 95, 96. Something, something. Yeah. Yeah. So, and being a, being a huge fan of Ed Wood, you know, I already, I was watching that movie going, well, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. You know, John Breckenridge, they didn't know him in advance, you know, the Bill Murray character, like he just showed up when they were filming plan nine. I was at least, I would say, I guess, smart enough to understand that he's a great character. You want to include him in here somehow. And that was my first exposure to Scott and Larry's work. Then when I saw People versus Larry Flint, which is a fantastic movie, and it's funny because I had met Larry Flint a couple of years before he passed and was talking with his, his wife at this event when they opened a Hustler store out here. He was all excited because I had Hustler number one and Chick number one that he signed Everybody else there, I was, I was, you know, in my own snobbish way, I was like, you guys are posers. I got the real deal here. You know, <laughs> you guys just showed up because they were giving out free magazines and he would sign them. You know, I, he got all excited when he saw my hustler number one, but I had talked with, with his wife and, and some other people and was like, you know, I kind of have like a, a two degree separation to Larry Flynn because I'm working on a movie with, with Scott and Larry who did, you know, wrote the, the people versus Larry Flynn. And I remember in their commentary for that Scott and Larry's, that they had mentioned that the Ed Norton lawyer character is really just a, a, a mushed up version of all of Larry's lawyers. And, and that comment was like, you know, we can't just show you a new lawyer every time you go to court, you know, so there has to be a common thread here. And, and, and I really just like, it just clicked in my head, like, wow, that's, that's genius. It seems so simple. But right, right after I saw that, I was like, if there ever is a Rudy Ray Moore movie, these guys have to do it. Ever since then, I always thought that that was, that that had to be done. You know, and so luckily, you know, it did. And and I'm happy that they told the producers, you know, hey, we need to get Mark involved. It was a great experience for me. And I would the book wasn't out then, of course. So there's sort of a reluctance of like I'm giving you all this stuff that I haven't yet brought forward. And I've put so much into it. Of course, I've got a fee for it. Like you said, I'm sitting on a mountain of money based on all my Rudy Ray Moore stuff. Yeah, I've probably spent 40 times more on Rudy than I've ever, than I'll ever see, but it was never about the money. Oh, come on. The lucrative world of publishing again, you just have to be breaking it in, man. Of, of self-publishing yeah, that I had to do a Kickstarter for to try to get this book out. So it was, it was a little bit scary to, to just kind of give them all the, all the information that I had, but it was also kind of fun. They would call me and, you know, what kind of car did Rudy drive in 1972? And who's this person on this back of the record? And, and to, and sometimes to their surprise, I knew exactly. I've just okay, that's it. So I'd get a text message at eight o'clock at night, you know, while they're while they're sitting around working. And that that part was fun. You know, they 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 treated me really well. I have a lot of respect for them and their work. Um, you know, even when we were at premieres and stuff, and, and you know, Larry would come up to me and say, you know, this is what it is because of your help. And that and that meant a lot to me. And Netflix wasn't required to credit me on the film. It wasn't like there was a contract that said I had to be credited. And they did. And I'm proud to, to say that I'm the sole consultant on the, you know, the main consultant on the film. And, and why wouldn't I be, you know, I'd already talked to everyone, you know, and, and, and that was kind of like, you know, the, the ace in the hole that I had is that 
people would say, well, somebody else is going to come out and write a, write a book about Rudy. And I would say, so what? They can't talk to anyone. I've already talked to everybody and they're all dead. You know, so it's like, even if you put something out, I had no fear of it just because I knew it would just be an inferior product in the scope of it. And that was another thing too, is, is I kind of felt like it was getting to the end and I was about to wrap it up. And then the movie, the Dolomite is my name kind of comes into play. And it's like, well, I can't finish the book now. There's more to the story. I don't want this like, you know, six different versions revised and updated, you know, like as it's not complete. So if I did it right now, it would be incomplete. Um, so I had to wait for the, for the movie to come out by providing them all that material that I had. I mean, basically I just, here's my raw book. It equated it one time. I remember I made like a post on Facebook and was like, you know, this stuff is about to come out. And to me, it's like, you know, a writer's version of like postpartum depression. Like I'm, I'm lived with this for so long and now it's finally about to come out. And, and I actually remember it was Halloween that year and Larry called me and he's like, I just saw your post. And he's like, I know exactly how you feel. He's like, we go through this, like every time a movie comes out. So it was kind of cool for him to, I guess, talk me off the ledge or whatever you want to say. Cause it was, it was very emotional living with it for so long because of the movie. It actually kind of helped me when the book came out because it was easier for me to let it go. Such a personal experience for me. And, and it's something that I've like essentially worked on practically like every day for 30 years in one way or another, it's a hard thing to let go, but that's the whole reason for it is to give it to everybody, to let Rudy's story be told. Who ended up doing the layout for the book? Because the book is gorgeous. Well, thank you. That was me. When I knew I was going to write this book, it's kind of like Rudy. I always, and I think one of the things that connects me to him so much is, is I relate to him in a lot of ways. I used to joke that if I, if I was buried, my tombstone would say something like, here lies the guy who made all the cool shit that no one bought. I tend to just do things that I find personally. Oh man, you know, like I'm going to make a, you know, I mean, I made the Dolomite bobblehead and I'm thinking like, should be able to sell like 10,000 of these. Like everybody's going to flip their lid. Like, holy shit, a Dolomite bobblehead, you know, and it took forever to sell them. And it's just, but it's also like, you know, I mean, I made the Jean Rollin bobblehead, like who in the hell is going to do that? I did. Cause I wanted one. These are the kind of things that I put myself through just so I can have, you know, something tangible. I always knew that some of it, I guess would be like, I guess, masochistic in a way. It was like, I automatically knew that I had to put the book out myself. Like the, the ultimate tribute to Rudy is to do it myself. You know, nobody ever helped him on anything. And I just figured that no one would really give a shit. Like it, you know, it's, it's not like I wrote a book on Eddie Murphy. Ironically, I was getting pushed by people when the movie was about to come out of like, you know, oh, you got to find a publisher. And it was kind of like, I don't like to be pressured into like a deadline or anything because it took me a lot longer than I thought. Of course, I never thought it was even going to take me 30 years to do this. But even when I thought like, oh, it's right around the corner, I'm almost done. It wouldn't be done. And so I kind of like sent out some things to publishers and you would think, hey, there's this movie, you know, this is Eddie Murphy's like return to film that everybody called it his return, even though he said it wasn't. Why wouldn't anybody just be like, oh, hell yes. Like we want to be the one to put this out. I got zero responses from, you know, and the, and these, these uh, literary agents that you contact, it's easy to find them and it's easy to contact them, but they tell you don't ever contact us again. It says it right on their like websites. Like they, they, they'll send you an autoresponder that says, okay, we've received what you've sent us. If we care about it, we'll get in touch with you. You know? So it just like, it felt like I was just sending it off into a void and nobody, nobody cared about it in a way that bothered me. But at the same time, it was, I always knew I was going to have to do it on my own. 
you know, it's like Rudy said, if I wanted to be on the screen, I had to put myself on. It. So my, my thing was, well, if I want to, if I want to write a book about Rudy, I'm going to publish it. I'll say doing a Kickstarter was one of the worst things in my life. <laughs> it's not a, um, it is not a pleasurable. I mean, yeah, of course, if you like wake up on day two and your project's totally funded, you know, yeah, it was, it, yeah, fuck yeah. Kickstarter is like the way to go. But for me, it was probably just as bad as buying a first house and getting divorced. Like that's how, how much anxiety it gave me, especially because like I wanted it so bad. If I can't do this, like, wow, is there really not anybody that gives, gives a shit about this? Like I do. So that was really in a way discouraging. Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot from doing a Kickstarter. I would advise people to really do more research before they ever do one. And I didn't want to just put out like a, a lesser version of the book. I always wanted it to be a hardback. I wanted it to be nice. I thought Rudy deserved that respect. And especially since I put so much time and effort into it, you know, and I never wanted it to be an ebook. To me, this is, this is valid, you know, and it needs to be on paper. I was scared because the amount of money that I was asking for, I think it was like $33,000, which is a, which is a large amount, but that's what I needed to do the book, the way that it came out. There were people that criticized my goal. There were people that emailed me and messaged me directly and told me that I was, you know, money grubbing. And, but it's also like, don't I deserve a couple bucks for all of this? You know? And it's not like, again, you're making a wage off of this. You're putting it right towards this big, beautiful, hardbound book that looks like, frankly, it looks like a textbook. It looks like something that should be taught in schools. And I was 100% support that, but just amazing. I can't imagine the raw cost of each one of these books because it has to just be a ton of money. Uh, of, of course, I, I listed all the supporters in, in there, you know, you included, and thank you. Even as frustrating as, I mean, it, it basically it's cyber begging is what I call it. I'm, I just, I was spamming the hell out of every place I could find. Um, just please. Part of it's what I call kind of like the Rudy Raymore curse. And, and I'm, I was experiencing the same thing that Rudy went through. And it's like, you, you kind of sit there when it's go time. You're like, oh, there's all these people that are Rudy Raymore's biggest fan, but where's the support? Like, where is it? And Rudy felt like that a lot of times too. Like, you know, all these people say that they love me, you know, oh, I got all your records. And it's like, they have two, you know, it's like, they, you don't have, you don't have shit, you know, like, so that was kind of frustrating. Like, of course, I hoped that after three or four days, it would be like, boom, you know, we'd be funded. You know, I, I got some, some good donations and, and started out really good. And then you just like a couple of days later, you just go, oh, wow, it's already, it's already tapering off. Like, and you start doing math, like, oh my God, I'm never going to make it. Like, I'm going to have to make this much money every day. And it's an up and down roller coaster that whole time for all, all that 30 days. The supporters of this were awesome. There were so many people that were commenting on the Kickstarter page of like, man, people need to step up. And they were promoting it on their social medias. And to me, that was amazing. It was just awesome to see that there, there was support. You know, people were like, this has to happen. And, and I, I can't thank those people enough. All of you guys that supported the book. I mean, you made my dream come true. But we got down to the end and I'm just sitting there like, fuck, I got like two days left. And it's like, I don't think I'm going to make it. And even my wife is like, I'll pay the 2000. And it's like, but no, that to me, that was cheating. It had to do it on its own. And then right at the end, I was at work and I'm sitting there like every 10 minutes, just like looking at my total. You know, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? And all of a sudden I just was like, holy shit. Like I'm, I'm over. I've just, I've just reached the goal. And there's like two days left. What's funny is it turned out someone had commented 
Like, what happened? Did someone, someone's rich aunt step up? And it turned out it was one of my aunts who I hadn't really spoken to in decades who had just found out about it and was like, oh, well, you know, I just want to help you make your dream come true. It took forever. I had to do the whole thing. I mean, I laid it all out myself. Originally, I wanted it. You know, my grand idea was that it would be this like elaborate magazine with like sidebars and all this extra stuff and this really, really hectic, busy layout. And it just as I started doing it, it was just like, no, that's going to take away from the material. You know, it doesn't have to be flashy. And I've kind of always had a motto that, you know, simple and simple and effective. And I, I think that I was able to to pull it off. But, you know, all that stuff, laying out the book, I did everything from zero to 100. In some ways, it was a nightmare, but it was printed in China. So they would send over, they sent over a couple copies, like, you know, overnighted before the whole shipment, you know, got on a boat. And kind of to your comment, when, when I opened it up, my wife said, this feels like a textbook. And it brought tears to my eyes. It's kind of like, you know, holy shit, like I did this. I was right there with you. I think I saw my first Rudy film late 80s. And yeah, you had no idea what the hell was going on with this guy. (laughs) Occasionally run into like cassette tapes. They had cassette tape versions of his albums, which were just horribly laid out, you know, because the the album being square and the cassette tape being a rectangle, just the way that that was. And yeah, but yeah, it's like, what is this? You know, what are these party albums and how does this fit in and where does this come from and what year was this and just all of these things and like yeah like going to the video store and looking up like oh what is this movie monkey hustle you know and what is Mm -hmm. this thing and there was that dearth of knowledge and then you managed to fill that hole my friend you have to be and you really need to be lauded for this because (laughs) you you just brought to life i mean People don't know about party albums, the Chitlin Circuit, you know, black exploitation. Dolomite is my name was like a starter drug for a lot of people, but you just mm-hmm. filled such a a gap in popular culture through looking at this one man and how much he was able to do and not get any credit for it. And I just I love that you were able to do that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. As it just continued to grow over the years. I just, I just really felt it was necessary to make, and like you say, a textbook, like I wanted it, I wanted it to be academic, but not dry. Uh, The responses that I'm getting from pretty much everybody have been confirmed exactly what I wanted it to do. I wanted it to be entertaining. I wanted it to be informative. I wanted it all to be accurate. But so here I am writing a book about something that I never lived through, things I never experienced. I had to learn a lot of stuff. You know, I don't, I don't come from, you know, like I said, I'm just a, bald-headed white guy with tattoos, the least likely person that you would see. You know, if I said, oh yeah, Rudy Ray Moore was my buddy. I wrote his biography. People go, what the fuck? Holy, like you, you know, when I first started, I, I would start reading books about black languages and vernacular. And, and I started, I, I was getting into books about like the toasts and the street tales. And I read all that stuff. And I read some 300 page book about the origin of the signifying monkey. And so it wasn't just that I learned about Rudy Ray Moore. In order for me to properly put his whole life in context, I had to learn about all this stuff. And and that was one of the things that that was very important to me was to put it all in context and provide the information so that it didn't matter where you come from, who you are, what year it is. You should hopefully be able to understand the context that he comes from. It's like, yeah, okay, so what? So what if he goes from Milwaukee to Cleveland? Well, what was going on then? 
Well, he was, you know, he was recording songs. Okay, but so what? Like, what kind of songs is he recording? Who's he, who's he working with? Like, what's the climate, the musical climate at the time? There's so much ancillary history that goes into all of that to, to explain where it all fits in. And that gives you the context to understand how important the things were when he did it or when he failed. Like he was like right at that perfect period where possibly could have been a success. It truly was when I don't remember if it was James Brown's first record or if it was a second or whatever, but one of James Brown's very first recordings, a catalog number is one number before Rudy's on, on like, I think Rudy's debut single. And when it comes to Rudy being a singer, what's funny is that he never really talked about that for forever. It was even kind of a shock to me when in, I think it was, I think it was 2001 when there was a Holly Gully fever collection that came out on Norton records, which was a whole bunch of his fifties and sixties recordings. Even though I'd already known him for years, I didn't even realize because he, he would discount things. It never did what he wanted it to do then. So he figured no one gave a shit about it anymore. That was another part of the struggle with Rudy is he didn't voluntarily go, well, hey, you know, I was doing this at this time. And, and you know, and then I was doing that. If you didn't know it and you didn't ask him, he didn't really tell you. And I remember one time he, he blew up at me again and was like, well, you know, you're not asking me about this. I'm like, well, how the fuck am I supposed to know about that, Rudy? You're supposed to be volunteering this information to me and I'm we're going to build off of it. You know, and so those are, again, one of the another one of the frustrating things to, to work with him is, is he didn't think those things had any value. So he wasn't big on elaborating. And then when you asked, we wanted him to elaborate. Well, sometimes he was ashamed, especially if he was talking about his childhood or his family life. He sometimes would be proud of the budget that Dolomite had. And then there'd be other times when he didn't want to talk about it because he thought it would be like demeaning to his, like what a cheap piece of shit that movie was. You know, it only cost $140,000. He, he would start to kind of play both sides when, however it worked well for him. But yeah, he, he was difficult, but he was Rudy. Honestly, I miss him. It's a bizarre thing. Like, I, of course, I wish he was here to, to see the book. I wish he would have been here to see Dolomite is my name. Netflix was incredibly generous to me. You know, I didn't expect you know, any, anything from them really, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like I said, they paid me for what I did and, and, you know, I'm not do anything after that. They actually, I even went down and I was on the set of the film. You know, they let me go down there. Craig Brewer was amazing. Scott and Larry were there. You know, I got to meet Eddie Murphy and Snoop Dogg while I was down there. It was like during the opening scenes when they're in Dolphins of Hollywood, when they're in the record store. I'm not Joe Hollywood, you know, I'm just some idiot guy who wrote a book, you know? And so like, you know, I'm self-deprecating, but I don't need to be there. You know, there's no value. There's no value for me to be there. But they were like, oh, yeah, yeah. You want to come down? And and it was the beginning of July. And that would be 20. I think it was 2016. I think that they started the filming. You know, I'm sitting right next to Craig Brewer in front of like at the monitor. Like he's like between takes. He's like, oh, yeah, roll this back. And he's got, you know, his editor guy who's in a back room somewhere and some secret, you know, Oz behind the curtain somewhere showing clips. So, you know, he's trying to describe like how he's envisioning the, the title sequence of the movie. You know, I'm sitting there with the headphones on so I can hear all the dialogue and the people, Oh, you need water. And, you know, like met Ruth Carter and, and all the people on the set, everybody was super cool. Wesley Snipes was there that day and you know, he wasn't even working. I think he was getting like a costume fitting and he came up and gave me like a soul shake and was like, yeah, you know, maybe I'll talk to you about, about Derville. And, you know, and, and everybody was just super cool. They flew me down to their LA office and I had like a private screening at Netflix of the movie, just me. 
I'm just sitting there by myself in the Netflix screening room, you know, and they're like, oh, what do you think? You know, how was it? And, you know, I, I'm sitting in their boardroom with a bunch of people asking me questions and I'm via satellite with their New York team. And, you know, it was just kind of like not my element, I guess, but it was amazing to, to be a part of that. I was at the premiere, you know, my wife and I are walking, the, it was an orange carpet because they had it in, in certain colors that were part of the, the movie scheme. So it wasn't a red carpet, but we joked because you know, we pulled up in the like tinted window Escalade and all the people are like, oh, shit, oh, you know, Eddie Murphy. And then my wife and I get out and like, who the fuck are these guys? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know we're just kind of walking through and who, who? They're, not, they're not anybody special. You know, I, I even got to go down before the premiere. They brought myself down again and they brought Ben Taylor and Jimmy Lynch in and we watched it together. And just just watching it alone with them was an amazing experience. I just remember I'm sitting there next to Jimmy. There was a scene. I think it's the scene where Eddie as Rudy first does the signifying monkey for the very first time in the club. And they start to see like how it's, you know, it's building and it's actually going to work. And I remember Jimmy just looked at me and said, Eddie's got some of Rudy's moves. And seeing the look on Ben Taylor's face when they when they broke into the recording of the Dolomite theme, he just he just like hopped up to the front of his seat, was you know hands on his knees and was like, just just, oh, my God. He kept turning to me and go, yep, that's how that happened. That's how it happened. They were just so excited to, to see it, you know, and, and, and get their due, you know, in, in the story. You know, Jimmy wasn't wasn't in Dolomite, like I said, but he was a huge part. And that's that's another thing that, that I'm happy and proud that that Scott and Larry included. You know, they knew that Jimmy needed to be included in that story and that they were at the premiere. You know, they got to walk the carpet and get their pictures taken with you know, with the people that were portraying them in the film and they got to meet Eddie Murphy and, you know, it just overall, I think the whole thing was, it was a super cool experience. And when I reflect on it too, you know, I have to, have to remember that a couple months later was when COVID hit. I'm just so grateful that I got to experience that, you know, and experience that with those guys because potentially it might not have happened, you know, considering what, what came shortly afterwards. How did this deal with Grindhouse happen? Because now it feels like ordering through them is probably the simplest, or would you prefer that people order through RudyRaymore.com? Either one. Now, Bob Morosky, Grindhouse is, has been a longtime friend. We worked on some projects before. I did the Beyond Bobblehead. You know, he owns the rights to the Beyond for Grindhouse, which uh, I'll make the brag that it's the only bobblehead with a, de- with a detachable face. There's, there's two faces in there. So the girl that gets shot in the face, you get the before, and then you take it off and you get like her exploded face underneath it. So I was pretty proud about that. And I also did a, a Lucio Fulci bobblehead that I worked with Bob. Bob's always been a huge Rudy Ray Moore fan. I think Rudy actually gets thanked on every Grindhouse release in the thanks list. I remember when when Bob won his, uh, when he and his wife won the Oscars for their editing on The Hurt Locker. Uh, they had like a um, like a, an aftercam type thing where you could go. It was an internet stream, and they they could go thank anybody they wanted, like after their acceptance speech. So he got on there, and I remember he would just at the end of it, he was like, you know, something like, you know, God bless Duke Mitchell and Rudy Ray Moore. And I even mentioned when uh, going to see Jerry Jones's Chicago Club Run Boogie performance, I brought Bob to that, and his wife joined us. And, and you know what's cool about Bob is he's he's just a fanboy like all of us. He was, he had his stuff. He was getting things signed and, you know, just like everybody else. And, and, you know, I've always respected that. I mean, here's a guy who, you know, he's an Oscar winner. He just edited, you know, that, that Dr. Strange movie was like the billion dollar box office film. You know, he did the Spider-Man films and 
So it's kind of cool in a way that it's like, I feel like there's a big shot in Hollywood who's on all our sides. He was always supportive of, of the book. You know, I had sent him kind of like an advanced version and he kind of read it and proofread it, hooked me up with a friend of his at proofread. You know, of course, and this always happens, you know, as soon as I got the book back, I opened it up and went, oh shit, there's a typo. God damn it. There's a typo. So he kept pushing me like, you need to do more books. You need to do more books. And I'm like, but with what money? Like the, the Kickstarter is going to pay for all the books that I can afford, you know, and I'll have a little bit left over to sell afterwards. And so he joined in and I just said, okay, you know, you want this amount of books made? Well, then you pay for the other books. You know, you pay them and you sell them because I don't want to have a garage full of books forever. And he went, okay. So he he paid for that portion and I you know, had that delivered to him and he he's selling it. And, and, and you know, Bob's just an awesome guy. I was, I was super excited to have, have his involvement and his support in it to make it, to have more copies available for everybody. Cause it was, I mean, I was, it was stretched thin. I was only going to be able to, with the money that I made off the Kickstarter, I think I was only going to be able to make 1200 copies, you know? And so he, he fronted the rest so I could put it to 2000, you know, and this, this is a limited edition. There's really only a couple hundred left. When I was doing the Kickstarter, I originally announced it as a paperback. One of the stretch goals was for it to be a hardback. And after maybe like a week, screw the stretch goal. Uh, it needs to be a hardback anyways. And so I just said, it's a hardback now, you know, and hopefully more people would would just jump on board board with that. I will say this to anybody out there who supports things on Kickstarter, support it on day one. Don't wait until the end because your support at the beginning builds the confidence in that project that more people will get on board. Lots of people will sit around and say, well, it doesn't look like it's going to do it. So I don't want to give them my money, but you're not giving any money until it's fully funded. Throw that support in on day one, as soon as you see it. That's the key that helps keep that momentum going because you get down to the end. And, and I tell you, I was, I was just sitting there going, oh, what the hell am I going to do? Like, if it doesn't, if this doesn't do it, like, what's my next step? Like, this is not some print on demand, you know, straight to Amazon book. No offense to anybody that does that, but I couldn't put 30 years of my life in this and just have it, have it come out like that. Like it had to have some legitimacy talking about it being, you know, quote unquote, like a textbook. I'm working on getting it into some African-American research libraries and colleges right now. Um, so far, it's been accepted to Princeton. It's on its way to Harvard. Professor at UCLA has it right now. I do believe that this is a historic document. I don't see why this couldn't be a part of someone's curriculum. I mean, that's how important I feel that this this book is. And not just because I wrote it, but just because of the subject matter and the amount of history and what Rudy did, I mean, no, nobody else really did. You know, if you if you think about you know him taking those street tales, those toasts, and recording them, there were a couple of people who had done it. He wasn't you know necessarily the first, but he's the one who just took it and ran with it. Even when I talk about the context of things in the book, the book goes through so much stuff. I mean, really, Dolomite is my name, and this is kind of Dolomite is my name in some ways is detrimental to my book. Because again, like I said, you get those instant experts. They think, oh, I already know everything about Rudy Ray Moore. But that's maybe like 10% of the story. You know, that's that's really just a small fraction. That movie really only takes place if, if we were to put it in in correct, you know, chronology. It's only like four years of five years of Rudy's life. I knew that the book couldn't come out before the film. Film did what the book could never do was get Rudy's name in every single person's mouth. My book is never going to get Al Roker going, yeah, Dolomite on like the Today Show or or have an Ellen DeGeneres talking about Rudy Ray Moore. I knew that the, the movie had to happen before the book, just primarily for that reason alone. 
So thankfully, the, this kind of grand scheme that I had of Rudy getting like a, a biography type show, and they did an Unsung Hollywood with Rudy that, that Jimmy and I participated on. And then the, the Blu-rays came out, which I worked on. And then I knew there needed to be a biofilm, which came out, and then my book. So there was just kind of this chronology that I knew in the back of my head also that had to happen, even if maybe it hurt my book success. And it was never about that. I just knew that those were the steps that had to happen for Rudy's legacy to really be cemented. And everything I've always done has been for Rudy. You know, I never, I never really promoted myself very much throughout this project. When the ball started to roll on things, then yeah, I would kind of like come out from behind the curtain. I was never posting my name on Rudy's Facebook page that, you know, that I ran or, you know, it was never about me. Rudy was the focus. But there were times when it, when, of course, I needed to step out and say, you're doing something about Rudy. Well, no one knows more about him than I do. So I should be a part of this. But I never tried to upstage Rudy. You know, it was always for him. He deserves to be remembered. You are not one to just kind of sit around, not do anything. Obviously, you're working on a bunch of stuff. What are you doing these days? Well, I still keep promoting Rudy. Uh, actually, just... Last night, you know, as, as we're recording this, just last night, there was a drive-in screening at the Mahoning Drive-In of Dolomite. They showed it there. They contacted me and I recorded a, like a video intro talking about the movie, which was cool. So that's now two times I've kind of shared the screen with Rudy in one of his movies. When the Vinegar Syndrome restoration happened, they showed Dolomite at the Egyptian Theater. And uh, there was some clips of some interview footage of myself and Ben and and Ben was there that day, Ben Taylor, and he was all excited to see himself on the screen. And I am working on some other things. I've got some some projects relating to the golden age of adult cinema that I'm working on. I've I've amassed quite a collection of eight millimeter loops and magazines and 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 things of that nature that I'm planning to archive and and do something with. I am working on another book. It may be the only other book I I write. I, I joke that. I'm going from writing the hardest book I could ever write to the easiest book I could ever write. This one, and I haven't really uh, you know, announced it, quote unquote, officially yet, but it's the biography of Gloria Leonard, the authorized biography. So I'm working with her, her daughter, Robin, very closely on that. So, so I went from having someone who would never really give me the information I was asking for to having someone go, here's everything my mom ever did. So I have all that material, but in my own typical way, I'm not the the, the quickest to produce results here. Uh, I don't plan on spending 30 years writing Gloria Leonard's book, although I am a couple years into it. But there's something about, again, there's a responsibility here. Even though I have all this material from her, and she actually had written some kind of rough draft autobiographies in the past. So I have, I have all that material uh, to work from as well. So it'll, it'll probably be something like, you know, written by Gloria Leonard and Mark Jason Murray type of a thing, because so much material from her directly, but I still, you know, she, she's, she's credited, for example, you know, for creating phone sex. Now I have to research everything about phone sex. You know, I'm just like, and, and how, how those, how those phone numbers came to be. And, and so again, I tend to go, I tend to go down rabbit holes because I feel like I, I need to be an expert. Even if it's only something that I'm going to write three sentences on, I need to be confident that I'm an expert in, in whatever I'm writing. Writing books for me is a very, uh, it takes a whole lot out of me. 
I personally don't see how people can just just spit books out. Maybe they, they maybe they just have something that I don't. I'll tell you how I guess ridiculous and over the top I was with with Rudy's stuff. And again, this is something that was probably summarized in one or two sentences, just so I could understand how his movies played theatrically throughout the country. Like, what was their path? My wife and I looked. We gathered thousands of newspaper pages. I built a spreadsheet of every city and dates of when Dolomite played and what movies it played with. And was it at a drive-in? Was it in a theater? Held over just hundreds and hundreds of listings of of these these dates. And at one point, I just said, like, okay, I spent a month working on this. Do I really need this much information? It was helpful, but I probably could have just like spent a day on it and and realized, you know, I just thrive on that information. And I still look at that spreadsheet. I, you know, today I'll probably go on Rudy's page and go, oh, yeah, back on this date in 1976, you know, Human Tornado played at blah 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 theater, you know. And so it makes it makes some some fun content. But those are the depths that I'll go to to determine, you know, what, what the results are. So I have to, I have to kind of reel myself in. That's the kind of fanaticism that I can really appreciate. All your hard work is not for naught. And I agree with you that if you know that stuff, if you research it and you find out all that background, you are confident when you write those two or three sentences, you, when you take all of that knowledge in your head and you write those sentences and you just say, Nobody's going to be able to contradict me on this because I know that this is right. And you become that expert. You know, you might not ever think about that ever again in your life, but I don't think it's a waste of time. And I think that you're giving the proper due to things. That was kind of, wouldn't say a fear, but a concern. Is, is someone going to come back and go, oh, that's not true. Maybe not to you. And, and again, one of, because I had spoke with so many people and, and I wanted the, I kind of consider the book to be more like an extended article. You know, it's, 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 there's quotes in practically every paragraph in the book, practically. So in a way, I'm just weaving the story together. If you try to dispute it, then you're disputing Rudy's word. You're disputing Jerry Jones's word. You're disputing the people that were there. In my, in my mind, you know, what I've done is essentially, I guess, bulletproof. This is the, these are the comments from the people that, that lived it. So I'm not paraphrasing them or putting words in their mouth. You know, someone, someone had made a comment. Where and I hate this too when I read books and it's like you're reading a, a biography on somebody and there's all this dialogue in there that that supposedly the the subject and their friends have talked about and it's like how do they know that they talked about that you know it's like do they just have like thousands and thousands of hours of recordings that were just like random shit that people were talking about in their living room one day as soon as I see those things I immediately start to question the the validity of the book of like. You know, are you just, you're just trying to embellish on a story here. And I was very concerned with not wasting space. I didn't want, sometimes you read books and you're just like, okay, this dude's just filling up a page here. And if I felt like, like I didn't have enough information, then it was back to that rabbit hole to figure out what I needed to get to, to expand on, on whatever that, that little portion portion might be. Mark, Jason Murray, thank you so much for your time. This has been great talking with you. And thank you so much for the book and all the hard work that went in behind it. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate those comments. And I also appreciate you having me on.
is the godfather of the disco. Is a man blue. He don't give no slack. We'll boogie all around you. Don't take no shit. It's death on angel dust. It's clean to the bone. Let me tell y'all that he's a god. 